Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Garolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com. Diodora, brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg, and currently worn by world number 28, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, is the official shoe of the podcast. See them at Diodora.com. We have a very special show for you today. Today's guest was born in Denver, Colorado and grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. He attended the University of Illinois and was a member of the 2003 undefeated national championship team. He got to 56 in the world in 2016, but has been an elite doubles player, particularly these past three years, teaming with the Brit Joe Salisbury, winning four majors, including back-to-back U.S. Opens. He got to one in the world in October and was unceremoniously left off a U.S. Davis Cup team that only carried four players instead of the allowed five, and we talked about it all. Rajiv Ram is today's guest. So now hang on, where are you? I'm in Northern California at the moment. Is that where you live? No. Uh, part-time. I have, a, I have a home out here, but I'm from Indianapolis. I spend most of my time in Indianapolis. Did you grow up going to that RCA tournament? Was that your... I did. I, I was I was a ball boy at that tournament in 97, I want to say. And then I played it five times before it, uh, it unfortunately left town. But uh, yeah, I have a lot of great memories of that place. Gentlemen, you here uh, distinguished himself at the age of 38. By getting to world number one in doubles, one of the great feats in tennis. I mean, that's been one of the greatest things that's kind of flown under the radar, you know, as a lot of things in doubles do. Rajiv Ram, my man, nice to see you. Very nice to be here, Craig. You know, you you have a place in NorCal, is that right? Yeah, just a a spot that... uh... I've liked over the years, kind of have a decent setup here. It's it's okay to escape the, the Midwest winters, um, but uh, Indianapolis is definitely still home. Do you have a Do you have a court? Do you have your own court? Do you have, do I have my court? own court? I don't have my own tennis court, unfortunately. No. Come on, man. Now, where? So, where do you practice? In NorCal at the Orinda Country Club. Orinda. Yep. How's that? It's good. Uh, yeah, I got a, a couple of good guys here. The head pro there is a guy named Tyler Brown. He's a good buddy of mine. Um, and yeah, just uh, hang out, you know, play some tennis, play some golf, and uh, and try and just get ready for the next season, you know? Now, as you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the off-the-court report. I think you just said it. You're, you're locked in for the holidays in California? Actually, no. I'm headed back to Indiana uh next week so i'll be oh, back there and then and then taking off from there for the season my man you are full indiana you full, yeah, full, indiana. full full indiana and and what will you do for the holidays um not much a little practice just hang out see my mom uh which is which is always nice uh and then yeah i mean we, i gotta leave pretty much a couple days after christmas so it's gonna be um you know getting ready for the new season basically and, and you're playing with salisbury Yes, that I am definitely playing with Joe. You and Joe were bad to the bone all year. That just continues. The beat goes on. Yeah, I mean, look, we we this is gonna be our fifth year together. I can remember after, like, you know, after we played our first year in 2019, we had a conversation of, okay, you know, 
What do you think for next year? And every year after that, it's we haven't even had that conversation. It's just sort of been like talking about schedule and talking about when we're going to get to the first tournament, where we want to play, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been awesome. It's been so good to have a partner that I feel like, you know, you know, we, we got each other's back. Let's move into the second set. This is the on the court report. Listen, man, inquiring minds want to know, we want to know, what happened in Glasgow that left you off the team for Malaga? It was an unusual thing for our listeners. If you don't know, the U.S. Davis Cup team traveled with four players. They left a fifth player off the team. Jack Sock and Tommy Paul lost the deciding rubber to the Italians. And the best doubles player, the best ranked doubles player was sitting at home. And that was Rajiv. What happened, man? Yes, I'll I'll give you the I'll give you the story from an unemotional perspective. Just just exactly what happened. I I got a call from the captain right before I took off for the European indoor swing um, saying, look, I'm I'm not going to keep you on the team this year or as far as sorry, I'm not going to keep you on the team for this tie. Um, we're going to go with a different option. We're going to go with all singles guys. And I, I told him I, I thought I was surprised. I, I disagreed with it. At the time, I was I just got to number one, won the U.S. Open and, and had some success in Scotland as well. And Sorry, so Marty I, I called thought, you. Yeah. So it's it's preliminary is in Glasgow. Right. Then, it's like the quarterfinals, if you will. Yeah. To get through that group stage to get. To, sorry. It's like the it's like the preliminary to get through to the quarterfinals. Yes. So he calls me and says, look, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, have you on the team. We're going to go with singles guys. And I, I told him I was uh, yeah, surprised and, you know, I didn't agree. I thought that was not the right move. But look, at the end of the day, he's the captain and, and it's his call. And, and that's that. So um, I left for Vienna knowing I wasn't on the Davis Cup team and, and just assuming they were going to pick, you know, another player. Um what shocked me the most was when the, the, the team selections came out, there was only four players listed because, you know, we have a, a whole slew of very good singles players in the, in the U S whether it's, you know, Maxime Cressy or Mackie McDonald or Jensen Brooksby or Brandon Nakashima, you know, the list goes on and on of, of guys that, uh, you know, could fit that bill. So, yeah, when, when we, um, you know, I, I made a couple of phone calls and inquired and said, no, this is our, this is our team, both from the captain and, and from the USTA. And they said that, you know, this is what we're going to go with and the captain's choice. And I, I was really shocked at that one because I said, you know, guys, I mean, I, I just feel like we should have a fifth player, whether it's me or anyone else. Like, I don't understand why we shouldn't have a fifth player, but to no avail, that was, that was the case. And then, um, yeah. And then I think we all saw the result as to what happened in Glasgow at, it uh, it unfortunately didn't go very well for the for the Americans in, in the first sorry, round. Sorry, you mean Malaga? I mean, sorry, in Malaga, um, in Malaga against Italians, it, it didn't it didn't go very well, unfortunately, against uh, against the Italians. Yeah, but, but being a Davis Cupper is a prestigious thing. You don't leave a spot open. It's the captain's just the captain can play who he wants to play at their discretion. Is there any explanation for why they left uh, the spot open? I have asked for that explanation and have not gotten it as yet. I had asked um, some folks at the USTA to to please let me know why the reason was, and uh, was told that that those were you know internal discussions that kind of had to stay internal, if you will. And I, I felt like being someone who was on the team from you know Davis Cup last year, um, and I you know went and played. In Reno, and I flew the day after we won the U.S. Open. I flew to Scotland, you know, to play that tie to, to you know play those ties to be on the mat, uh, on the team. I felt like I was 
I guess entitled is maybe the wrong word, but I deserve to know at least why we didn't pick a fourth, a fifth player, but wasn't told. And to be honest with you, my, my biggest gripe and maybe my only gripe about the whole thing is I, I felt like the U S went in underprepared and, and in the sense that we didn't have a full team and just didn't give our best effort. I feel like, you know, it's like any other team sport. If you don't take a full team, that in my opinion is not your best effort. Do you have static with Jack Sock? Did you, ha- did you, and do you? Static? I mean, we, we, I thought we got along fine. I mean, I don't think that, you know, there's a bit of an age difference and we're, we're not, you know, and you could ask him the same thing. We're not the best of friends, but we don't have any issue with each other. Absolutely. We, we played a tournament in Atlanta in the summer. Um, we've played against each other a number of times and there's never been a problem. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to say that, you know, he's my best friend in the whole world, but he's, I had, I had no issue with him whatsoever. What was the experience like in Glasgow? It was fine. I mean, we, we played three matches, two of which were decided after the singles. One, we won, one, we lost. So the doubles was kind of a non-factor. And the one match that the doubles mattered, I mean, we played against Andy Murray, who's a legend of the game and, and Joe, who's my partner who at the time was the number one player in the world. And, uh, and we beat him from a set and a breakdown, which I thought was a pretty amazing effort in Scotland, you know, mind you, with the, the whole crowd rooting against us. And I thought it was a pretty awesome effort. And then ultimately I thought was not our match, but that tie was the difference maker that, that kind of got us through to the, to the next stage. So I thought it was a, a huge win. In my opinion, for me personally, it was one of the biggest wins of my career. Did you have good interaction with Marty Fish? What's your relationship with Marty Fish like? Yeah similar i mean we've been we've known each other for the last 20 years um played him on tour in singles and doubles played for him as a captain when he was a captain in turin and in reno and then he unfortunately didn't go to uh scotland because he had he had he was sick he had covid so bob Bryan went with us which bob was unbelievable um yeah listen i've had i've had no issues i'm not, I'm not the type of person that has issues a lot and um had no issues with any of these guys for sure i mean I know the unemotional part of this is one thing, but it's got to sting a little bit in particular. It's like, they seem like they were operating like no one's watching. Then they lost. And it was like, wait, wait, what just happened here? Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course the, the emotional part of it is that I do feel like I, I would have loved the chance to have played. Um, I mean, look, you know, Davis cup, something that's incredibly important to me. I, I haven't been on the team much, you know, I mean, obviously being from America, and we have had a history of amazing players, both in singles and doubles. Um, if doubles, you know, if you want to say that's my forte, which it is. I mean, the Bryans kind of held that spot deservedly so for a long time. I wouldn't have picked anybody else either. So it's like I feel like I, I, you know, had the chance and and performed pretty well. And I, I loved playing Davis Cup. And I thought, quite honestly, I thought we had a, a team this year that had a, a real chance to win it. And um, like I said, when you know, that's only if you give your full effort. And I just don't feel like we did that. Was he distracted? I know he had a lot of other businesses going on. Generally speaking, in the annals of Davis Cup, the captain has a visibility expectation that didn't seem like was really met from from the general perspective, right? He was typically the Davis Cup captain is at the majors. Typically, the Davis Cup captain is at the big junior tournament. It's like he he seemed to be a little bit distracted. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I would say he was less visible than most other captains. He did it his own way, and and you know, would I would I as a player personally preferred him to be at more places and more tournaments? Sure, I think it would have been beneficial to everybody. But it doesn't mean that 
you know, wait, hold on, hold on. Why? Why is it interesting for the Davis Cup captain to be visible, to be sort of fluid at the, you know, the big stops on tour? I feel like Davis Cup's ultimately a team event, right? And I think that, you know, anytime that you could sort of build that team atmosphere, even if it's not at a tournament that is a team event, I think, you know, there's an opportunity there to get your guys together, get it, you know, get the, the team sort of together, have a dinner, have a, an interaction, something to where there's a little bit more of a camaraderie felt so that when the time does come for Davis Cup, um, it's, it's, it's a bit more familiar, I would say. And, and you have that sort of strength. Um, I think those, that type of thing goes a long way in those team events, especially, and, and perhaps is even more important than tennis. That being said, like I said, that's his job. I, I wasn't the captain, and I was fine with him being the captain. Could could he have done that? Probably better, sure. But I'm sure there's things that all of us could have done better. You know, you know the the word is is he's going to be out. That he was that he's you know that to some degree had lost interest. Uh, the, what happened seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Do you what what are you hearing on the street? Our show's an insider show, so. Anything you say is between, you know, it'll stay between me and all my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, I'm hearing the same thing. I'm, I haven't heard anything formal from anyone as yet. So um, I'm exactly where you are on that. I'm, I'm hearing that uh, that is that is the case, but nothing formal has been announced or, or told to me. And there is a tie in against Uzbekistan uh, shortly after the Australian Open, correct? Correct. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Let, let's continued. see what happens. Yeah, let's see what happens. You're you're 38. Did you feel like ageism played into this this sort of debacle? I I don't really know that that's the case. I I feel like, you know, I I don't have a good I, a good reason as to why I didn't get picked. But my, like I said before my biggest issue was how we didn't pick a fifth player. And so honestly, it was complete negligence on, uh, in my opinion, that, that, that happened. It wasn't anything else because they weren't saying that I got picked for a younger player. I got picked, you know, you know, I, I got, picked, nobody got picked instead of me and nobody got picked instead of anybody else. Cause we had a bunch of other guys, like I mentioned before that could have played. So, I mean, that was the real shocker. And to me, the, the real, error and mistake that I, I just couldn't honestly believe that, you know, nobody stood up and said anything about. When you, uh, you mentioned you escalated this to the USTA after you talked to Marty, uh, who did you speak with? I spoke with uh, Martin Blackman privately alone. And then I spoke with Martin Blackman, Stacey Allister and Kent Kinnear um, all together. And they stuck by Marty or did they, did they admit to a, a screw up? Um, not really much of either, to be honest. They just kind of said, you know, sometimes decisions are made and they don't end up being the right ones. And I kind of pressed for a reason a little bit more. And that was just met with, oh, you know, that was internal talks and we can't share that. And I basically said exactly the same thing to them. As I said to you, I just thought that it's unfortunate that, you know, many of us, them included, spent a lot of time, effort and money to get us to that point. And we didn't, um, not it doesn't matter if we win or lose, but we didn't give our best effort, and that that to me is inexcusable. You're the only brown skin player on the team. Do you feel like there's a low key element of 
you know, I hate to say racism, but did did you not fit in in a way that was palpable to you? The answer to me is no, I didn't feel that way in the um, ties leading up to it. Like I said, I'm not best friends with anybody on the team, but there's also a significant age gap there. So I don't really expect it to be. Um, and maybe there would have been a hint of something if there was, you know, perhaps another player picked instead of me. I, I don't even know that that's the case. But like I said, the fact that there was no player picked to fill the fifth spot was really, it threw all that out the window, which I guess maybe is a good thing, but mm-hmm. it, it made it worse because like I said, I just don't think it was, uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't giving us a, a real shot. Do you just think Jack said, I, "Yo, I don't want to play with Rajiv. I want to play with Tommy," and and Marty had his foot halfway out the door anyway, and just was like, "Yeah, yeah, let's just do that." I have no idea. I like I said, I tried to kind of understand what reasons could have been. I would have accept. I wouldn't have accepted, but I would have appreciated just any kind of you know reason as to why these decisions were made and I, I didn't get anything and I haven't gotten anything as yet. And um, yeah, I'm still interested to be honest with you because it's a a big deal to me. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a huge thing in tennis to try to accomplish to win the Davis cup. And um, it's not something I take lightly whatsoever. So yeah, to figure out what happened and why they, why it happened is still important. Did you have a uh, acrimonious conversation with Marty? Did you guys scream at each other? Do you scream at him? Uh, we had two conversations, one when he told me that he wasn't taking me, which I told you that I said I disagreed and I was disappointed, but but it's his call. And then we had another conversation when I asked him when the team was named and I saw that there was only four players. And uh, he said to me that um, he wasn't planning to take anyone that he wasn't planning to play. And I still didn't really accept that because I was like, well, you, you can't say that, you know, that's going to happen if somebody gets hurt or whatever. Um, but again, I, you know, he's the captain and that's when I just sort of, I went a little bit further to try to understand how that is okay. Because I, I feel like he should have complete autonomy to pick his team, but he should be able to, he should probably have to pick five players. I feel like, and that was what bothered me about it. To be honest. Not, it, it, it bothered me personally that I didn't get picked. It bothered me more for the whole, the U S Davis cup situation that we didn't take a full team. We were the only team not to have five players. No, so odd. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where you talk about your career. You're infamous for your serve. You're, you've got one of the more, like, I think a great sort of nickname. They call you Ramp. Some people call you Rampress. I've heard that. You serve just <laughs> like, you serve just like Pete Sampras. I yeah. want to get to that, of course. But where does your tennis begin? My tennis begun before... I can actually remember in the sense that I don't actually remember the first day I played tennis, um, which is pretty cool in the sense that it's, it's been something I've done my whole life. Uh, my, I'm a, yeah, my, I'm an only child. Um, we lived actually, I was born in Colorado, lived there for a month. My dad got a job out, out here actually in the Northern California area. So lived here for five years, started playing tennis here just with him. I mean, it, Sorry, it was wait, 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 and where, where were you born? In Denver, and your yeah. parents are your parents educators. Uh, my dad, no, my dad was a scientist. He had a PhD in botany, and worked for a very uh, a few different companies over the years. My mom's in the same field uh, as well. She worked less extensively, 
What does but that no, mean? That... But what does that mean, botany? What does that what, like when he goes to work? Um, what does he do? Like what does he do when science. he goes to work? <laughs> he was in plant sciences. He did basically, you know, extraction of oil, different things from different plants, different ways to house them, grow them, make them, you know, better. It was, it was a field that I knew nothing about and still know nothing about. Like, like agriculture, <laughs> uh, science, yeah. plant yeah, science. Exactly. Yep. Damn. Yeah. So he was, a, it was a very smart individual. Um, and so, yeah, he got his first job out here in Northern California after doing his PhD. So we lived here for five years and yeah, I, I was an active kid, um, you know, would, would play all sports, just happened to gravitate and had a knack for tennis a bit more than, more than the others. Um, I, uh, yeah, we'd play with him every day. He'd come home from work and we would just kind of, yeah, whether it was out on the sidewalk and when I got a little bit bigger, we would actually go out to a tennis court, um, would go there. And then when, when I moved, uh, we were, I was five years old and we moved to Wisconsin. He got transferred to was another company and, um, moved to Wisconsin, which was a little colder, a little tougher to play tennis outside there, obviously, as you can imagine, but we continued doing, doing just that, just joined a small little club. And I just, you know, I played every day with him that I can remember. Um, and I started to then play some tournaments and all that, but it was still kind of like a hobby, if you will. I mean, I was pretty good at it, but it was, it was a hobby. Um, wasn't much. I know, but like, father's fun activity. How did you get elite? How did you get good? When I was 12, we moved to Indianapolis. And amazingly enough, for that part of the country, for our part of the country, Indianapolis is like the hotbed of tennis, if you will. I mean, we have our like local tournaments there. Then we have some bigger ones, some sectional tournaments. And I, I, I kind of, it was one of those things, right? Timing is everything. I happened to move to a city that had a lot of tennis, had a lot of really good players that were just a little bit older than me that I got to play against and compete against. And you know, I, I was used to kind of being the best player in Wisconsin, but that wasn't really that big of a deal. But now all of a sudden with all these other kids who are really good and it's sort of like I, the competitive bug sort of took over and I just sort of wanted to, you know, wanted to hold my own, if you will. Um, and well, hang on yes. a second. So when did yeah. you get national ranked people, you know, yeah. going? So, so at 14, I was at 12. I was not very good. I was, yeah, I was okay. I was nationally ranked, but I was like, in the top 50, let's say maybe the top 70. And then by the time I was 14 in the same age group, I was like in the top five, top three, top five. So it was like, that was like sort of a, a jump that I made at that point where I started to play. Like I was one of the better kids in the U S in my age group, but it still wasn't something I was like so serious about. I never thought about going to an Academy or I never, you know, it was never something that I was like, Oh, this is going to be my life. You know, it was like, God, I want to, go to a school and my dad always thought you know tennis is a great way to just get a better education which he was absolutely right and maybe that's kind of how he sold it to my mom to for it's okay to be for me to be that serious in it you know <laughs> that he was gonna that I was gonna get more educational opportunities which I did for sure um, and then I got to about 16 years old and I started working with my coach who's still my coach today uh, we started working when I was about 15 and I got to about 16 and that was when I like made a, a real jump and who's the coach sorry a guy named Brian Smith that's your uh, coach that's your from coach Indiana, from Indianapolis went to Ball State University and yeah he's uh he doesn't travel with me but he's still my coach today who I like when I go home we're gonna go practice and it's uh you know that's what we do we just kind of uh we do the stuff that's off off the tour if you will more so 22 years yeah same guy 22 that's years a, that's a big effort now yeah. Were you playing Orange Bowl? Were you playing Eddie Herr, Le Petita? Were you identified by the USTA as a pro prospect, a pro player? Yeah, I, I didn't get selected for the La Petita. Um, it was a similar situation to Davis Cup. 
didn't, didn't get picked. Um, Orange Bowl, Eddie Hurry, yeah, I played all that stuff. Was was okay. Was never was never in contention to win it or anything like that. Did pretty well in the U.S. Nationals. Won, I won Kalamazoo. I won the Easter Bowl. Um, never was great internationally. But, yeah, I would say at, at about 15, 16, I was identified as someone that could be, you know, in contention to be a professional. What's the story with Sampras? How did you start copying Sampras so closely? So my first coach was when I was 15, right? So my dad wasn't a tennis player. We were, it was a father son activity. So what was his way of coaching? And we had no YouTube. I mean, it was his, what was it in the nineties, right? There's no YouTube. There's no real internet. Right. So we happened to have a generation of amazing American tennis players. Boris Becker happened to be my first favorite, you know, but then you had these, these, you know, four five, six Americans that came up and were incredible. Pete won his first U S open in 1990. I was six. And my dad was like, geez, this guy's pretty good. Why don't you try to play like him? And that was kind of it, you know, like he was like, yeah, he, he does everything well, you know, he's going to be <laughs> probably going to be one of the best for the next coming years. And, you know, let's try and see if we can play like him. And, and that, that was it. I mean, that, quite honestly, it was not much more than I learned my tennis from watching, copying, imitating, as it is pretty clear. But I didn't have a coach to tell me how to hit the tennis ball. Man, you know, I remember like in 2006, I was in D.C. at the tournament and i remember watching you practicing i was alone i was behind the court and i was watching guys and i thought you actually hit your backhand like pete too that you got you copied his backhand too huh i copied i copied everything 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 yeah because i just i i identified with that and i saw a guy who played like i wanted to play who was obviously way more talented and gifted than me, but I wanted to play that style. Um, and, and I could sort of do it. Like one of the things that I have a <laughs> for is I, I can kind of like, I, I can kind of like copy. I can imitate players pretty well. And I can almost, I, I feel like I can kind of feel what they feel, if that makes any sense. And so I, I just sort of, I, 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 that was the one that it lended me. And that was my game style. That was where my strengths lie as far as coming forward, being an aggressive player, having a good serve and all that. So it was like, that was the guy who I thought I would want to play like. So there was, was there a match or a moment, uh, a week that, you know, you said, okay, well, I can be a pro player. I can be a professional. I could, I could go out on this tour. So when I was 17, I actually took, started taking my training a little bit more seriously. I, I actually moved. It wasn't a big move, but it was, it was a two hour down the road. I moved to Cincinnati, Ohio and ended up doing what our version of homeschool was for a year, which was like school through the mail. Cause there was no internet school at the time still. And there was a group of four or five of us. And there was a, a our, our Midwest, our sectional coach was a guy named Kelly Jones, who was a, a great player in his own right. And um, I started to train like a professional. I would, you know, play. Sorry. For our, so let me, let me stop you for a second. For our listeners, Kelly Jones, longtime American stalwart, longtime American. He was a player. He, is married to, uh, I believe, is it Tammy Whitlinger? Is that who he? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Kelly, he got to the world number one in doubles as well. So yeah. he's a yeah, great player for for a while in the in the eighties. Yeah, Kelly Jones has been around pro tennis for thirty years. Yeah, eighties. Sorry, 90s. continue. Yeah, so so he was the coach. He was USC employed coach for for our section. So four or five of us got together and decided to kind of go down and, and train with him. And and I decided to take it even a step further and and not do regular school so I could have more time for that. Because I was really enjoying it. I was really enjoying the idea of getting better, to be honest. And so then I started to play like, you know, twice a day and go to the gym and have like a, a, a schedule that more of a pro would. But 
yeah, I would drive there every Monday, stay with the, a friend, um, and then drive home back to Indy every Friday and spend the weekend, you know, with, with my parents and with my, with my friends back home. So I never really, I never really had any interest in like, you know, living that life completely, that sort of academy life, but that was sort of the closest I had to it. But that year after about a few months, I was like, whoa, I, it was, I could feel like I was a better tennis player. Um, and it was just easier for me and everything was, I was fitter and stronger and it was, everything was just easier. Um, so I would say about then was when I decided I was going to at least make the rest of the decisions going forward for the next few years in the idea that I was going to be a professional. That would be, you know, going to college and, you know, you know how that was going to look like and, and all that. So. And I mean, listen, you got to inside the top 60 in singles, you got to 56 in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a great effort. Did you start out with the focus to be a singles player? Completely. I mean, that was, I played singles as a priority for the first, I don't know, 13, 14 years of my career, but I will say it was like, I, you know, I got to college, maybe 2002, 2003. And, you know, I was playing a certain style similarly to how Pete and like Todd Martin, those are kind of my guys that I looked at. And then it was like, somebody changed the rules and this new string came along called Luxalon and the courts became way slower. And all of a sudden this whole style that I had sort of attempted to develop just kind of went away because yeah, because people were able to do different things with the ball that they weren't able to do before. So everything that you sort of, you know, were taught, you know, applied pressure, how to sort of play and how to sort of impose yourself was sort of not, not really the case anymore because um, there was new technology and that was a, really difficult thing to adapt to for sure so you trying to be sampras backfired it, it backfired a little bit yeah and one of the things i'll say i'm probably the most proud of is i i still i i, I didn't you know i was never in contention to win any, any any huge tournaments and singles and all that but like you said it was respectable enough to get inside the top 60 like i managed to find my way in singles even though you know yeah like i said it felt like the rules changed in the sport I forgot to ask this when we talked about Davis cup, but I was told that the singles guys on the team were concerned that you can't bang with the singles guys, you know, the world-class singles guys from the baseline. Mm. Is that a valid point? Um, No, I I don't believe it's a valid point. And I feel like the record that I, well, I feel like the record that I've produced in doubles in the last three, four years is is enough to show why that's not a valid point. Um, would it be fair to say that you that the the technology and the style changes though put you at a disadvantage? You know, moving through the through the career in a way, or were you able yeah. to just yeah? I would. I think I would have. I would have my game style fits a little bit better, especially in singles. My game style fits a little bit better to have played in the nineties. Sure, but got what you got you know i mean you can't i can't you know i can't have been born a different time than i was so it is is, sure um but it was just it was a it was a case of having to adapt to it that was that was more of the challenge and and change some of the kind of fundamental principles that i thought were going to serve me pretty well you know main draw one rounds at you know all the majors did you like being a player on tour in terms of a singles player or were, were you constantly sort of frustrated that your style, you know, in a way was like unfortunate? <laughs> that, that's a really good question. Actually, I think 
one of the one of the things that helped me get to a, a better space in singles is when I sort of accepted that this is what it is, it is what it is. And yes, it would have been great to have played when this, you know, when, when my style would have fit in a little bit better, but it's just not the case and I'm going to have to deal with it, you know? And I think once I sort of accepted that and sort of even tried to assimilate a little bit as best as I can, I changed rackets in 2015 to a battle lot that helped me a ton. I Wait, used hold to, on. Why? Yeah. Why did the racket? You, we weren't playing with the same builds and Wilson. I was with a head prestige before uh, that. Okay. Yeah. Pretty and, and old school racket. You were playing with the redhead prestige, which is you know yeah. one of the most famous rackets in pro tennis history. Yeah. What? And you moved to the Bob a lot. Which one? The arrow, uh, the pure arrow, which is the same racket I use today. That's the Rafa one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and that gives you what? Well, it just gives me a little bit more forgiveness. It's just a little bit more, you know, oomph on the ball. It's a, 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 a more new age racket. It's not even that new age. It's been around forever and ever, but it's yeah. a little bit more powerful racket. But I didn't even try any of these things beforehand because I was so like, this is my style. This is what I do. And this is the kind of equipment that I need. And I was, you know, finally I opened up to at least trying something. And this racket was amazing. I thought it had that sort of old school feel with that, um, you know, that sort of new age you know, uh, let's say technology, technological benefits. And so that was a big step for me is to just to try something new. And I ended up, yeah, getting to my career high in singles a little bit after that. You did. Yeah. And that's an interesting example of a technology change, like working extremely well, huh? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a big, yeah, but more than technology change, it was also a mindset change for me that it was okay to, to not just be stuck in my ways and be a little bit more open to what the game is like today. And even if I don't like it as much, I don't, I don't, I like tennis more how it was in the nineties. I like contrast and styles and contrast and speed services, but I don't play in the nineties. So well, I can like whatever I want. I can enjoy watching tennis from back then more, but I have to play in today's era. You know, the homogenization of the sport is, you know, it, it can be troubling at times. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Do you love doubles? Do you do you love playing doubles? Do you always love playing doubles? I always love playing doubles. Yeah, um, playing it as the sole. F- it, it's changed a lot though. Doubles was, you know, second priority for a long time for me. So it was a way to practice. It was a, a way to play with a buddy and, and have a good time. It was a way to earn a little extra cash, you know, on tour. Um, it changed a lot when it became my sole focus, and when I had a, a set partner to then try and build something with, and you know, try to be the best in the world and it was a it was a, it was a different sort of mindset and it, it changed a lot of, you know tennis is not a team sport normally and, and then all of a sudden it becomes a team sport and you know one of the things that i always say that you know what the, what the best thing i can do on a doubles court is make my partner feel good make my partner play well because that means i don't have to play as well and so it's like you have this you have this aspect of you know dealing with your own game which is what normal tennis players do and then in doubles you got to make sure you're there for, for your partner. And I think that is something that I had to work at quite a lot is, you know, not worrying so much about me, but also about the team. Your best moment on tour. My best moment on tour. Wow. That is a good question. Um, up there has to be winning our first major in Australia, followed by defending the U.S. Open this year which was which was pretty cool um because i think that you know winning a, a major at all you never know if it's going to happen um and then you know 
once it did happen, then we, you know, it was a pretty rare feat to, to repeat at the U S open. I think only the Woodies had done it. They had told us. And so just to do something that was, was, you know, something that was a bit rare was neat. And then it's not really on tour, but becoming number one in the world, um, is, is, is the coolest moment of my tennis life. It wasn't something that happened on the court, but becoming number one in the world was the coolest moment of my tennis life for sure. Oh, you got the number one in the world, man. That's just unbelievable. How does your body feel? You're 38 years old. Do you, do you feel 38 or do you feel 25 when you're playing? Uh, I, I definitely don't feel 25. <laughs> I, no? I feel, I feel closer to my actual age, but I, I'm, I've been lucky. I've not had to have a, a surgery in my life and knock on wood that stays that way. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, with the advancements in like, you know, in um, recovery and, and just sports science in general, I think it's helped a lot of players, myself included, play a bit longer and and have success later on. And I think um, I'm going to ride it out as long as I can. But, yeah, taking care of my broad body is, is at the highest of priorities for me. Listen, one of my listeners, he's from the UK. He's got a handle that says D dot. Noy, N-O-Y. I don't know who this cat is, but he says, from the UK, please thank him, you, for the wonderful tennis you and Joe have produced this season and for how he has helped Joe become such a great player. Question, do you work directly with Lewis Kayer? And could you become the guru of British doubles after Lewis? Wow. First of all, to your listener that's quite a compliment um i think joe and i help each other for sure so it's it's a team effort and i think one of the best things about our partnership is that we couldn't have done it without each other so i think that's the first thing i'll say um louis Caillé is the is the guy's name and yes i work very closely with louis louis is a possibly the best tennis coach i've ever worked with in my life singles or doubles um the guy oh, man, I feel bad. Louis Caillé. Louis Caillé, when you hear this, I apologize. That's that's a bad that's a bad <laughs> effort for we, me. We 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 both talk about how people butcher our each other's names all the time. So it's a, it's a common it's a common thing we Louis and I share. But no, Louis is um responsible at the LTA, which is the 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 British version of the USTA, the LTA um for all the doubles players. So and me playing with the doubles uh with the doubles with a British partner, I get access to Louis. And so Louis has been our head team coach since we started um, in 2019. Um, yeah, have learned more from Louis than possibly anybody. Um, he's got a wealth of experience. He's coached a, a whole slew of, of world number ones and Grand Slam winners and Olympic medalists, gold medalists and all that. Um, and so, yes, I do have the distinct pleasure of getting to work with Louis directly. Uh, and the second part of that question, would I ever do that job? I, Cool. I, I don't know. Hopefully that's a long way off. And I feel like there's probably a lot of Brits that would be in line for that before me. I do wish that the USTA had a position like that because one thing that Louis has been able to do has is, is make great careers for a number of guys in the doubles world that, that wouldn't have probably been there uh, had he not been in that job. So I think it's something I wish the USTA had, but yeah, that's, that's another story, but I don't, I don't know if I'd be in line for that job um, because of, uh, of many other British players. Another listener, uh, she's from Indianapolis. Uh, she's prominent tennis. Uh-oh. Uh, Megan Fernandez. I, Megan. You know Megan. She, she, knocked, she, she hit me with about 80 questions. I'm going <laughs> to get two. The first question from Megan. What did you learn about Venus playing with her at the Rio Olympics? And 
I guess there's a sly inside question here about how did you pack a silver medal? <laughs> what I learned about Venus, I learned that Venus is one of the most incredible competitors that has ever played our sport. I'll tell you a quick story. Playing our first round against Holland. Um, and we are playing mixed doubles, obviously. And we're sitting on the changeover and we are down a set. It's even down a set real tight. Seven, six, it's like two, three in the second. No issues. We're playing well. We're just kind of losing, but barely. She looks over at me and she goes, that girl hates me. And I'm looking around. There's probably a couple hundred people watching. I'm like, who are you talking about? And she's like, our opponent. And I was like, wow, that's okay. Nothing's happened so far at all. <laughs> and I'm like, is, is everything fine? She's like, Yo, that, that girl, she doesn't like me. I'm like, okay, um, whatever. We, she ends up playing significantly better for the next half an hour. We win this match. And afterwards, and, and by the way, we'll, we're playing Kiki Burton's yeah. and Jules Rick. Kiki's like one of the nicest girls. Yeah, on yeah, yeah, of course. She doesn't, she doesn't hate anybody, right? Yeah. And I'm, and and Venus doesn't ever project it on our opponents at all. It's just completely within herself. And I'm like, what happened? And she's like, no, you know, sometimes I just need to fire myself up and and make it. I need to create a story for myself. And I was just like, that is amazing. I mean, <laughs> it, it was done in the most respectful way. Nothing against our opponents, nothing against anyone in the crowd, nothing outlandish. She just found a way to compete better. And I, I'm telling you from that interaction, I just learned about like what a champion's mindset is like. And there are going to be days when you just don't feel it. And, and she figured out a way to get herself to that state. You know, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Sometimes I like to I, we, I, I describe that as, as uh, she likes to have an enemy. Yeah. I, yeah. I like to and, have an enemy from time to time, too. Now, yeah, but, uh, where, where, how'd you get your silver medal home? Yeah, we, we got that. We got our medals in Rio and they didn't have the cases for them. So I had no other way. And I, don't, I wasn't going to check the thing, you know, not in my checked luggage. And I wanted to protect it. So I, I put it in a sock and I put it in my backpack and, and I flew back. I was flying to Cincinnati actually to play that tournament. And every checkpoint, obviously, you know, you put the backpack or the carry on through the, through the, uh, the machine and they'd be like oh that gets getting stopped and everybody would pull it out and be like oh my gosh you have a an olympic medal i'm like yeah i just won it and i don't want it to get it ruined so i figured this is the best way to protect it keeping a sock in and keeping my carry-on <laughs> i mean to have had that olympic experience is just outstanding yeah absolutely craig tiley was your coach at illinois you guys went undefeated he's now the tournament director uh, at the Australian Open, do you get preferential treatment? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, Craig's about as fair as they come. Um, but we had a uh, we had a great team. It was one of my better tennis experiences. Again, it was on a team. It was something that hadn't been done before. You know, being from the University of Illinois, a, a school that wasn't really known for tennis or anything like that. Um, you know, to go through and, and run the table and have a teammate of ours win singles and my partner and I win doubles, you know, get the triple crown. And then obviously to see what Craig has gone on and, you know, gone on to do in the tennis world. Um, and then to win my first, uh, my first two majors actually at the Australian open um, when he was there, you know, as the tournament director was also just a, a personal sentimental, cool moment. And Australia's coming up. You'll be there in weeks In weeks. I know crazy, isn't it? Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I say it and you say what just comes in your mind. You ready? Ready. Favorite tournament? Newport. Newport, Rhode Island. Yeah. Why? 
won my first two, won my two singles titles there. As a as a Rhode Islander, that was a ball boy at Newport. We're uh, we're proud. Wow, of you. I didn't know that. Correct, I, I, man. Yeah. You, learn, you learn something new every now. Favorite city, Indianapolis. Favorite player growing up started with Boris Becker and then Pete Sampras. Favorite player now is there anyone you love to watch play tennis? Uh, I love watching. Oh man. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I love I love watching Rafa play simply yeah. because of how his his competitive his his ability to compete uh, through anything. Uh, it's not really because of his tennis, but his his just his mental ability is to me is incredible. Do you know him? Do you guys talk? I I know him. Do do we have long drawn out conversations? No, but I I do know him and I I respect the heck out of him. Do you ever hit ball? Do you ever play him? I played him, yeah. I played him in singles and doubles, yeah. Got smoked in singles and <laughs> got, got him in doubles, but yeah. What does that feel like? Where did like with that that ball with that ball just so, ripping? So do you know like like when he played Roger, it wasn't a great matchup, right? One handed backhand. I'm like one one millionth of Roger. So like <laughs> you can imagine how that went. When do you poach? Are you always poaching? Is there when, is, but- is is doubles just a game of just little mini poaches? You always have to yeah. be poaching game of squeezes i would say i don't squeezes. think there's that many poaches i poach when i tell my partner i'm gonna poach but doubles is a game of squeezes and and making your opponent feel like there's not much space taking space away a lot of movement at the net but you're not a feel poacher you 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 tell them and you go sometimes i'm a feel poacher but quite often, more often than not it's a planned poach or it's a squeeze is there a live golf situation brewing inside of pro tennis? Are we going to hear about Pospisil and Novak uh, coming to you guys going to be having big meetings for like, you know, you guys are all going to start making, you know, 200 million bucks a year. Not that I know of, but I wouldn't be surprised. And I don't think it would be the worst thing for the sport. How are you feeling about the health of the ATP at the moment? I think it's fine. I think it's okay. I think it could do with a little bit of a shakeup in certain ways. Um, I think, you know, teaming up with the ITF is an interesting thought. Um, I think that uh, tennis is such a global brand that I feel like, you know, yeah, perhaps a little competition might be good. But I think innovative innovative thinking is always going to um, aid the sport. Best doubles player you ever played? Um single player is that what you asked me daniel it's nestor. scramble you got to answer it daniel nestor best doubles player you ever play with mm-hmm. boy i thought you were gonna say mectic or pavic before by the <laughs> way no those guys are vicious yeah no best i ever played with i'm gonna say joe salisbury my partner uh, where were you when Roger, um, you know, said goodbye? Where were you during that Labor uh, Cup moment? I was at home in Indiana, um, watched it, and uh, yeah. The guy does everything right, and he even retired correctly. It's amazing. Where were you when Serena finished up at the, or, or allegedly finished up? I was sleeping because I probably had a match the next day at the U.S. Open, so I did not watch that stevie johnson confirmed it john wertheim and i discussed it berdasco just got in trouble for it we're hearing a lot of talk of adderall abuse tues 
These guys are popping Adderall in advance of their matches. What can you tell me about that? Is that a real thing? I mean, for me, this type of thing is is an area where I have absolutely no experience or no idea. I mean, to be honest, I didn't even know what was going on. Um, I've heard all of the same things that you've talked about. I think it could certainly be very possible. Um, and I think it could be a real thing. I think it's something that probably needs to be looked into. Um, whether I can confirm it or know how prevalent it is, I mean, I really don't know. I didn't, like I said, this was all kind of a, yeah, when I read it, I was, it was as shocked as anybody that, that wouldn't be in the sport. So, um, yeah, it's something I don't really know much about, but I think it's obviously an issue and something that needs to be, needs to be dealt with. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis for a day and make any change you wanted with a swing of the racket, no aggravation, what would it be? <laughs> you know, I think for me, the one thing that we really struggle to look at is tennis from the perspective of a fan that comes to watch. You know, like you go to a basketball game or a football game and it's like you got, you know, it's, it's like an event, right? You can, you know, there's no real rules. You can come in and out as you please. And, you know, there's a lot of things happening there that makes it quite fun to go to. And I think sometimes, I'm not, I don't think we could ever get to that point because of scheduling and whatnot. But I think at some point we could have a look at it and say, all right, how can we make this a, a slightly better fan experience? You know, people come in, maybe they don't have to wait three games to go into a match. Maybe they can move around a little bit more. Maybe it's not quite so you know, hush, hush. I think there is a, there's a, you know, a definite um, charm to the, to the night, to the, to the, um, to the quietness and all that. But I also feel like, you know, the, the modern day fan would probably appreciate a, a little bit more um, liberty to do what they wanted. So that would be, that would be what I would change. Uh, just a little bit more seeing things from their fan perspective to improve the sport. But what about doubles, man? Like doubles is so hot when you're watching it. And you guys get no bounce at all. It's been like that since the, you know, I mean, the last time I can remember doubles being really sort of sexy was Mac Fleming. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't you feel like that there's an untapped, you know, diamond in there, like a diamond mine, (laughs) like a diamond mine? Yeah, hugely untapped. I think. It's not doubles that's the issue because the minute that, you know, singles players start playing doubles, especially the top ones, you get plenty of people interested. You know, that, that's not the issue. I think the issue comes with sort of, you know, telling the story and, and making the guys that are, especially at the top of the game and doubles, more recognizable in household names so people will be interested in what they're doing. And I think everybody has a story to tell. You know, everyone has, you know, a way that they came up to get to the point. Every partnership has a story to tell. And I think that's really interesting stuff, especially considering, especially in the U.S., most of the of the amateur, you know, recreational players play doubles. I don't think it's very transferable into like the game. I think the professional doubles game is incredibly fast and and not really, you know, comparable to what the amateurs do. But there is that team aspect. There is that, you know, that that component of it. And I think that would be something that everybody would relate to a lot. And I think it's hugely untapped. And it's unfortunate because I think, um you know, we've gone through in my career a period where you have the winningest team of all time in the in the Bryans playing, and I think they did a lot of their own promotion where I think they could have been hugely um, used, for lack of a better word, by the by the tour a little bit more to promote not only them them but the game doubles itself. Well, it's also so like sad when you're at a, a major final and 
you guys are playing the final at one o'clock and there's four people, you know, it's, you know, it's just not, it could just be so much hotter. That's it really. Yeah. And as as long if you could just get a little bit more recognition for the the people involved, I think that would solve the, the, the puzzle because I don't think it's about the game itself. I think the game is, is really entertaining to be honest with you. Sometimes probably more so than singles. Hey man, you know, um, we have a mutual friend, uh, Alicia Utapa, who helped broker this interview. I want to just, you know, wish her a happy holiday and say thank you. But, but uh, man, it was pleasure talking with you. I heard you were a good guy, and um, you certainly, you know, have distinguished yourself as a great, great player and stalwart. I'm sorry what happened to you in this Davis Cup. That was, um, you know, I don't know what happened, but it didn't seem right. Yeah, I appreciate you saying all that. Um, it was unfortunate. It was especially unfortunate, in my opinion, that, like I said before, we, we you know, having a, a great team and a great opportunity just, yeah, didn't give our best effort. And, um, you know, I, I think that the result sort of speaks for itself. But, uh, you know, having the team that we could have had and, and what we ended up producing out there wasn't, wasn't, wasn't our best effort by any means. So it's, it was unfortunate. I agree. Hey, man, onward. Uh, enjoy the holidays. Rajiv Ram, you are released. Good to be here. Thanks a lot, Craig. Huge thank you to Rajiv Ram. And thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com. Thank you to Diodora. See them at Diodora.com. And be on the lookout as there will be more to come. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.